Hello, and happy St. Patrick's Day, and welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get, get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Make sure you keep your conversations open for the public and on the level. To interact with us, you can join us every Thursday night. Uh, we are streaming live on Facebook, YouTube. Love hanging out with you in the chats. And uh, we love to see what you come up with regarding every week's topic. So, you know me. My name is John Rewark. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge, number 1957, in Fairfax, Virginia. And next up, who do we have? We have Joe Martinez. Hello, Joe. Hello. Hello. My name is Joe Martinez. Wait, and John what? decides to press the button. Yeah. Bam! There it is. Boom. Hi, Joe Martinez. I am not a Jacobite, but I am a Freemason. And uh, this week, I am uh, master of Manassas Lodge number 182 in Manassas, Virginia, and member of a bunch of other things, and uh, excited to talk about some history tonight. So let's do that. Let's do that. Awesome. Let's Next up, Jason Richards. Good evening. Hey, good evening, everybody. Jason Richards here, past master of Acacia Lodge number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, members of lodge, member of lodges in D.C. and Ohio as well. Sweet. Awesome. I know RJ's on his way, so we'll get right to it. But we do want to give a special shout out to the patrons who've been supporting the show. You guys are awesome. Uh, keep getting new guys coming into our, our little private uh, Facebook group and throwing lots of knowledge bombs in there this week. Some new members talking about PA masonry, talking about uh, the show notes from last week. So if you want in on that fun, love to see you over there. Head on over to patreon.com slash the Masonic Roundtable and uh, chip in a few bucks. And that way we can uh, keep the show going for many, many years to come. So thank you already for your support. And buy John new cool hats. Yes, yes. This, is, this was uh, not a TMR acquisition, but there might be more hats in the future. We'll see. Ooh, Ooh. I, I do like hats. I like them. <laughs> yes. Almost as much as skulls. Almost. Oh, oh maybe a little bit more. Because, <sighs> you know, you know, Joe is, uh, this is where he's working at in the hair department. <laughs> so he has to, you know, accent the head in some other way. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You know, we, we can't all have wonderful hair like Jason. Look at that glorious, glorious locks. Whispering away. It's I do, I do remember COVID hair, Jason, for like the Ooh, first six months. Do we have a picture of that? Yeah, oh. do we have a picture of that? You should whip that out. <laughs> Go to the archives. <laughs> that was good hair, man. It was yeah. the birth of my great new haircut. Like The whole Flock of Seagulls we thing? Posting, um, we were posting... No, it wasn't Flock of Seagulls. We were posting uh, pictures Cork. of... Uh, the or not Cork. Yeah, Zorg. Zorg from uh, the Fifth, the fifth element. element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Hello, my name is Cog. I'm made of rocks, as you can see. Moving along. So, this week's topic... The revolution has begun! This week's topic is about uh, Jacobitism, which is an interesting term that you don't hear much about in Freemasonry, and yet we may find out a little bit about history tonight where the linkage between uh, the Protestants versus the Catholics, the true heir of the crown of the King of England, the revolutions that were going on. Just There's so many plot lines twisted in here. You think you're watching a Marvel multiverse, but no, you're learning about Jacobitism 
and Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have to admit, when we were getting ready for the show, like I knew next to nothing about this uh, this topic, and you know, we were we were typing in our little like chat amongst the the hosts, like, man, there's just so many rabbit holes you could go down as you explore what was going on in Europe at this time frame, right as the Premier Grand Lodge of England was getting started. Um, you could talk about murder and betrayal and just, ah, uh, there's just so much to cover. We won't be able to cover it all, but we're going to do our best to talk about how Masonry may or may not have been influenced by the Jacobite revolution. So Jason, tell us about what, where does this term Jacobite come from? What is it all about? And, and then really, how does this, how does it set up the stage for the European theater at this time frame? Tell us, Jason. Ha! Huh. So the word Jacobite actually comes from uh, Jacobus, uh, which I read Wikipedia and totally forgot what it means. James. Latin for James. We're off to there a we great go. start. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, I study not necessarily the movement itself. Um, so the the Jacobite comes from the Latin Jacob for James, and it was essentially a movement that was designed to reinstitute the true Catholic heir over essentially Ireland and, uh, not Ireland, sorry, England and, and Scotland. And so to understand where where this is coming from, we need to go back to 17, when Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses um, on the door of the church and kicks off the Protestant Reformation. So Protestant Reformation sweeps through Europe. Um, the Catholic Church at the time had been very much associated with political power, and there were certain practices like the sale of indulgences, which Martin Luther uh, fought against. And he sought to you know, reform the church, not cause a revolution and a fracturing of the church. But ultimately, Protestantism um, began to make waves throughout Europe, in the, the early to mid 16th century, arriving in Scotland with the Scottish Reformation in about 1560, 1566. Um, Scotland was very heavily Catholic. And uh, if you know anything about the stonemasons guilds in Scotland, the stonemasons were very heavily Catholic because they relied on the Catholic Church. For, for their work. charters and for their work. That's <laughs> right. right. Um, as of the 11 and 1200s, the Catholic Church owned an estimated half or so of the entire landmass of Scotland. And so mm-hmm. there's a long history within stonemasonry of um, you know loyalty to the Catholic Church. The Scottish Reformation comes in in the 1560s there is a fierce backlash um, against 
you know, Catholic edifices and uh, raiders from the British Isles, you know, didn't help this uh, by coming in and raising cathedrals and destroying abbey records. Um, this is why up until the, you know, really 1598, we just don't have any paper records of stonemasonry. And it wasn't until the then king of Scotland in England, James VI in Scotland, James I in England, who gives us the King James version of the Bible, installed William Shaw as the master of work over the stonemasons in Scotland and really forced the stonemasons to start keeping minutes and, and records. And so James uh, really comes in and standardizes the craft and, um, you know, helps really, you know, unify the, the craft, you know, more or less across, across Scotland. Um, James I passes away and the, the throne goes to his son, Charles I. Now, Charles I got married to a Roman Catholic. Now, most of the Scots at this point in time are still pissed off at the Catholic Church, having felt defrauded over Catholic Church practices, policies, sale of indulgences, um, etc. So this creates animosity. Um, Charles I, you know, pledging in marriage to a Catholic bride, you know, becoming Catholic himself, um, a lot of native Scots felt that that was dangerous. Furthermore, um, Charles I did not aid the continental Protestant forces during the Thirty Years' War. And, um, you know, ultimately, Charles I didn't try to play the Catholicism card and didn't try to actively promote it necessarily. Um, you know, he did try to force the Church of Scotland to adopt Anglican practices. Uh, that led to the bishops' wars and ultimately strengthened the English and Scottish parliaments, which helped, you know, precipitate his, uh, his own downfall. Um, ultimately, it led to the English Civil War. And uh, after Charles I's defeat in 1645, you know, he surrendered to, you know, the Scottish force, you know, freedom. And he was imprisoned in the, the Isle of Wight. Um, ultimately, the monarchy was restored, you know, 15 years later with Charles's son, Charles II. Charles II went full Catholic. He attempted to introduce religious freedoms um, for, for Catholics. And, um, you know, the English Parliament actually forced him to withdraw the Royal Declaration of Indulgence, which was, you know, really a, a, a push toward, toward religious freedom. Um, 
Charles is actually one of the most popular of, of the English kings. Um, but he, uh, you know, when he passed away, he didn't have any legitimate children. And so he was succeeded by his brother, James, who became James the seventh in Scotland and James the second in, um, James the second in England. Is that King James from King James Fane? That is, um, no, King James the first in England is the King James Bible. Uh, okay. Um, this is his grandson. Okay. Um, so James the second, and I, I promise we'll get to the Jacobites by the end of the show. <laughs> this is fascinating. We're getting there. There's a lot to, there's a lot to, to go through here. Um, James the second was yet another Catholic king. And ultimately it was thought that the Scots were, okay with um, the throne passing to James's daughter, Mary, who was actually Protestant herself. Um, the problem was in June of 1688, James's second wife had a son. Oh. So now Britain has to contend with the fact that there is the potential for a Catholic dynasty to to take place. Um, so, a couple Protestant aristocrats uh, hashed a little plan by sending a note um, to William of Orange uh, so that uh, they could remove James from power and replace him with his daughter Mary and her Dutch husband, uh, William of Orange. And so William invaded and assumed the, the throne in what was known as the Glorious Revolution. William and Mary were crowned as co-monarchs in 1689, and that's when the trouble with the Jacobites started. So ultimately... Ultimately, the first Jacobite rebellion took place the very same year as the crowning of William and Mary um, in 89. The primary instigator was a soldier who is Viscount Dundee. His name is John Graham. Uh, he was very loyal to the Stuarts, and that was the, you know, the Charles James dynasty, uh, as opposed to you know, the, the William of Orange um, dynasty. So Dundee rallied a rebel army largely composed of Scots, and they faced off against William's troops. Um, on 27 July 1689, um, the Jacobites pulled out, you know, pulled off an amazing victory, and uh, you know, eventually really won that day. However, you know, Dundee ended up dying on on the field of battle and that was a massive massive blow to the morale of the jacobite rebellion to the point where they had further battles in 1689 and 1690 um but the jacobites were defeated both times and so they ended up 
fading away for for several years after that. So James II, who again was deposed in favor of William and Mary, died in exile in 1701. Uh, when William of Orange died in 1702, he was succeeded by his sister-in-law Anne. When Anne died in 1714, everybody said, hey, 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 we need to keep this line Protestant. We can't have the Catholics have it anymore. So the crown ended up actually passing to Anne's closest Protestant rel relative, George I of Hanover. And so this is the Hanover line of, of the uh, you know British monarchy at this point in time. Now, George I uh, was able to achieve something that really didn't sit well with the Scots, and that was the unification of England and Scotland officially. So since about 1603, England and Scotland shared a monarch. This is when James VI in Scotland, James I in England, same person, uh, James essentially inherited the English throne from his cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. So since 1603, now for the past hundred years or so, 98 years to be exact, you know, England and Scotland were separate countries, but they shared a monarch. In 1707, the Acts of Union officially united England and Scotland. This angered a lot of the Scots, and they fought to reclaim the throne for the current Stuart claimant, uh, James II's son, James Edward Stuart. A lot of Jameses in this story. Was that where uh, Mel Gibson got involved, or was that before that? Um, I thought that Mel Gibson had, I believe Mel Gibson got involved, uh, and I haven't watched Braveheart in a really long time, uh, with the deposition of Charles I in 1645. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Continue. So someone on YouTube fact check me on that because I'm interested. So first Jacobite rebel wraps up in 1689. Um, you know, about 17 or 18 years later, uh, England and Scotland reunite and the Jacobites rise up again, this time in favor of James II's son, James Edward Stuart. This next major uprising of the Jacobites came in 1750. At the time, there was John Erskine, who was the Earl of Mar, raised another rebellion with Scots, who took several took over several locations in Scotland and ended up... Um, you know, clashing with the, you know, the British forces uh, at the Battle of Sheriff Murr on 13 November 1715. This rebellion became known as the 15, but ultimately after this battle and others, it fizzled out because the Earl of Mar ended up proving himself to be a very ineffective leader. So that was 1715. Fast forward now, 30 years later to 1745. In 1745, 
you know, James Edward Stewart's son. So now the next kid wants to get a shot at the throne. Uh, James Edward Stewart's son, Charles Edward Lewis, or sorry, Charles Edward Lewis, John Casimir Sylvester Saravino Maria Stewart, known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, decided to take the throne. Um, Bonnie Prince Charlie arrived on the island of Eriskay, uh in July of 1745, accompanied by a tiny contingent of followers. Um, by September, he had actually raised enough support among the Scots to march into Edinburgh, and he began to lead the Jacobite forces to victory against government uh, troops um, in several battles. Ultimately, the Jacobite army eventually crossed over into England, the problem was the while while Bonnie Prince Charlie had a lot of support and enjoyed a lot of support in Scotland, he did not enjoy the same report or the same support, excuse me, in England. And so ultimately there was lack of support from England, lack of assistance from France, and Stuart eventually or you know bonnie prince charlie had to eventually make his way back to scotland um ultimately this jacobite rebellion came to a head in, on 16 april 1746 at the battle of culloden um at that point um his forces uh just absolutely clashed with um George's forces and were utterly obliterated and destroyed. Um, at this point in time, Bonnie Prince Charlie lived, but he um, he ended up living as a fugitive for several months um, before finally escaping back to to Europe, and he ended up um, passing away in exile in 1788. And at this point in time, with the passing of Bonnie uh, Prince Charlie, the Jacobite cause really fizzled out for good and ceased to be a political threat. Uh, it's still very popular in Scotland, though, um, and it's it's highly mythologized in in you know Vic, by Victorian writers and and in Scottish folklore. We, we love to yeah idolize our historical figures for sure. We love tragic heroes. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you for recapping that because so I carried the show for thirty minutes. I love it. Yes. I'm gonna you... go to bed. Yeah, Good night, no. everybody. <laughs> thank you. But wait, thank there's you. more. There's so, more. Because what I find fascinating is that you've really set the political stage of what's going on in you know in Europe or in, and religious and religious right in Scotland, Ireland and and uh england at this time frame which is completely underpinning everything that's going on at the premier grand lodge of england right so <clears throat> you know when you said went all the way up to the the birth of the daughter right and now there's this big fight from like uh of trying to regain the throne uh, to claim it as a steward from um basically the founding of the premier grand lodge of england in 1717 ish ish uh, uh, Two years after the Jacobite Rebellion of the 15th. Right. And then then you also have all the way up to the Jacobite Rebellion in 1745 time frame. 
So you've got this period of 20 years or so that Freemasonry is hitting the ground running, right? It's, it's going through its, its evolutions and revolutions. It's expanding across um, the other territories to include Ireland and Scotland. And then there's also a huge push of Masonry out uh, toward France, for example. And so the theory becomes one that while this was a political battle, was this also happening at the same time inside of Masonic lodges? In other words, were there Jacobite Masons that were trying to use the cover of a Masonic lodge so that they could talk in secret to, uh, you know, grow their cause and hopefully one day overturn the throne. So, um, one of the many myths attributed to uh, Jacobite masonry is that very shortly after the founding of the of the premier Grand Lodge of England was that we there was a huge notice of what else is going on in the country at this time and so um, it is said I can't find the, the specific source I'm sure someone else will track that down for me too that this is where we get the concept of not discussing religion and politics in the lodge room because if you're oh, starting this if you start this great this brand new experiment of a fraternity you know that has these ideals and then you're immediately seeing people start to populate this uh this this great fraternity with religion and politics you're like guys that's you're, you're missing the point we need to we need to reset that there's a bigger underpinning too that we can't ignore and that is at the forming of the premier Grand Lodge of England and up until the formation of the Grand Lodge of Scotland in 1736, especially in Scotland where the Jacobites were strong, you had this, uh, you had this kind of budding up of heads between operative guild masons and the new speculative masons. And so That's throughout true. You know, starting in about 1600 with William Shaw, you start seeing, you know, speculative and operative, you know, or speculative masons starting to show up on the log rosters or on the, the rosters. But after the foundation of the Premier Grand Lodge of England in 1717-ish, there's a huge a growth, explosive growth of lodges and charters speculative masonry formation of the grand lodge of scotland was partially um was partially in response to the explosion of speculative freemasonry within england and so now not only do you have the you know catholicism versus protestantism you now have Catholic stonemasons fighting on budding heads against potentially distant speculative Freemasons. And it's all coming to a head all at once around the same time as these Jacobite uprisings. You guys look <laughs> well, like I something so smells bad. No, so I, I had a couple just in the uh, you know the time that you were carrying us all. Uh, 
talking. Uh, I had a couple <laughs> of comments. Arms are so heavy. I know. Um, just a couple of <laughs> quick comments. Um, I mean, I think we, and I think the history books and, and us living in the United States and in and, and modern society, we kind of gloss over this fact. But the religious wars in the UK and in the rest of Europe, like they were no BS. Like it wasn't just like, um, you know, it, it, it would, I would, I would say it's similar to a lot of the different um, uh, Islamic sects that are out there. I mean, they fight for blood and for, um, you know, no holds barred is like, it wasn't just happy, happy go lucky time in, in Europe, especially in the United Kingdom uh, or what would be the United Kingdom. Um, Catholicism versus Protestantism was bloody and it raged for hundreds of years. And to, uh, to fact check you before William Wallace was in 1307. Um, so that's when Edward the first, was king of England, but I mean, they were raging about that kind of stuff back then. So these religious wars that Jason's been talking about, four hundred years, three hundred years, yeah, um, it's cool. I like mean, think bad. about Rob Roy. Rob Roy was like Braveheart Part Two. Ooh, I dig it. So apologize but, um, for the mischaracterization of William Wallace. We can fix it later. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it in post. post. Edit it in post. We'll fix it in post, yes. Oh, but the point I was going to make was, outside of that, was um, I find it really interesting that um, a lot of the stuff that we had to read for today's episode really starts to talk about the fundamental differences between uh, Jacobite masonry and, I guess, what they call Hanoverian masonry. Um, and, and just to touch on what John said a little bit, I mean, yeah, the premier Grand Lodge was formed in 1717-ish, but there were absolutely speculative lodges um, in England before then, as we know, they had to form. Um, but there were some, you know, we have records of earlier lodges that were composed primarily of, of speculative masons uh, in the 1600s, especially in Scotland. Um, and I know you, my Scottish brothers love to talk about how they have some of the oldest lodges in the world. And, but I mean, it does speak to how far speculative masonry had been going on before England tried to form a grand lodge, you know, and have an organizing body around that whole structure. So, you know, and I think we'll, we'll probably get into this as the show goes on, but you read a lot of stuff recently that talks about um, how there really were two branches of Freemasonry. You had that Jacobite, which turned into Jacobite Tory Freemasonry versus uh, Hanoverian and Whig Freemasonry in England. Um, and it was divisive, and it was probably one of the reasons why we had a split in the Grand Lodge, um, you know, a few years after it formed. So, you know, just some just some things to keep in your head. So then, if we're we're trying to now track down in history where there was some influence in the Masonic growing Masonic system of the Jacobites as you know, influencing you know the mindset of, of freemasonry and so we're trying to we're trying to nail see if if those politics and that religion did inter, interweave with uh, with freemasonry well, let's try to find that smoking gun and so um a.e wait in his encyclopedia of freemasonry does a good job trying to pull together well, at least what was known at that time and a lot of his findings are inconclusive right he tries to pull together some characteristics that may point to some alignment with Jacobitism in Freemasonry. One of which I find really fascinating is let's go look at the 
the Grand Masters of the Premier Grand Lodge of England. Um, so if we have, and we have this, you know, documented through Anderson's Constitutions and, and a couple other documents where if you look at 1717, we had Anthony Sayer, 1718, George Payne, 1719, my boy, John uh, Desagulier, 1720, we had George Payne, 1721 through 23, John Montague, the second Duke of Montague. And then finally, in 1723, we had Philip Wharton, who was actually uh, the Duke of Wharton, who was explicitly known to be a very proud Jacobist. So here we have the, what's it, one, two, three, four, five, six Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge of England during the height of everything we're talking about. And now we have a guy who is proudly a, Jacob, a Jacobist. And what year is this, John? 1723. So I got a, there's a note here in one of these, uh, uh, in a paper that I was reading uh, this morning regarding this, which uh, just as a footnote, it said, uh, the Walsh family with Freemasonry has already been mentioned, and O'Hegarty, Hegwerty, is credited with membership of a group of Jacobites which founded the first native French Masonic Lodge in 1725. So, like at this point in 1725, just two years later, you've got right. literally somebody who, I mean, is just putting out. Sorry, my dog's whining. <laughs> you know, 1725. Yeah, it's me. Uh, you know, a, a Jacobite lodge. I mean, essentially, right? A, a, but in a French. Yeah, just just two years later. Again, think of the expansion that's going to go on with masonry as it's exploding. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense that it, it could reach this this French system and impact that. Not only, you know, the the French lodges, which we do know were actually chartered by some of these, you know, um, the Grand Lodge of England at the time. And we also, you know, may have uh, a lot of alignment, which we'll talk about in a little bit, <clears throat> to the creation of the higher degrees, which also became the Echo Say Freemasonry or Scottish Rite. Yeah, something too to remember is uh, with like the Jacobite stuff, um, and I'm sure Jason covered all this when I was putting my kids to bed. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, believing you'll never in know. I, I'll have to listen in the post-production of the show uh, that <laughs> they're obsessed with, uh, you know, divine right of to, to rule. And you see yeah. um, somebody who was pointing something out um, in terms of Freemasonry and the kind of juxtaposition that this had within the craft because we view people on the level. So, like, this is a really big departure. Um, it's almost... Um, like incompatible, yet they just go, well, there's enough of us, so we can do it. And the other part of it is that uh, with th there is a French Jacobite connection too, but it's completely separate. And what people have tended to say about it is that the, the French Jacobite um, was essentially just, uh, the movement was just to push and make sure that the, the country was, you know, ruled under Catholicism. But we know how well that that went over. I Catholic or Protestant, both bloody. Yeah, and 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 as a side, you guys will probably it's got that little separate well. church and state in there, or separation yeah. of church and state. Joe Joe Wages actually talks Crowbar. a lot about. <laughs> 
that the two things where we've got uh, Protestant and Catholicism butting heads and, and you have the creation of entire different rites, so the Scots master degree and the Royal arch uh, kind of thing. So it, it's hairy. Well, that's, I mean, that's, and that's kind of the point and that I think what brings it back to the, the, the Freemasonic point was you had different strands of speculative masonry rising during this time. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, I, I do know that we did talk about how some of it, um, is very recent in terms of research, right? Um, a lot of the things that I read talked about how I love my brothers in England, love ugly. Um, but we're getting a lot of papers recently, uh, that talk about that. A lot of the early history of Scottish Freemasonry is kind of, uh, hidden under the, uh, huge amounts of historical content that come out of England. Right. Um, touting themselves as the first premier grand lodge and uh that kind of thing and that we're we're missing some some tidbits of information that could be there from scotland but it just doesn't get a lot of press um don't know if that's 100 percent true or not jason's making a face um but what we do know is that you did have different political motivations for your different flavors of freemasonry especially in england during that time um now could that have left the shores of England and gone to other countries. Why not? Right. Everything was so intertwined back then, you know, exactly to the point we talked about earlier. Um, religious affiliation was so important back then. Um, you know, whether you were Catholic or you were Protestant, um, I mean, that really determined your life. So why would you not bring that into these new budding organizations of Masonic lodges that were performing speculative Freemasonry? And why would you not espouse that type of, I guess nationalism, right? We do it here in America, right? Um, I think every country that that practices Freemasonry does insert some of their own uh, nationalistic juices. I guess that's a really weird description. Um, yeah, juices um, into their Freemasonry. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say juices anymore. Um, but that don't, don't put that on the. Don't put that on the bingo card. Um, Masonic juices. Wow. Moist masonry. Oh, boo. Anywho. Um, I don't want to play anymore. Well, you take a time out then because we're talking about juices. So these juices of masonry that are, man, um, I mean, I, I think they really did color how, how Freemasonry expanded and, you know, it, it, I don't think it's a stretch, uh, to talk about how, some of that stuff may have made its way into France. And, you know, we know very early on, like, like RJ said, uh, when you talk to guys like Joe wages, who are very well read on the subject, um, French Freemasonry went totally different than, than your traditional UK Freemasonry very early on, you know, and it had a lot of different symbolism. It had a lot of different stuff, some things that we miss that we long for, but, um, it was very different. Um, so, Long story short, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's coming out recently is talking about how a lot of that Ecosay uh, flavor of Freemasonry may have started in Scotland and had moved on to you know France where it just exploded. So Scottish right was Scottish first. You heard it here first, folks. I didn't say that, but okay. It's literally what you said. F- yeah. Fix it in post. All right, and replace every time I say juices with fluids. That's better. Not Masonic by much. Fluid. Not by much. No. Okay. Right on. 
No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so go ahead, RJ. This is kind of just, there's so much that this covers because it's really like a historical kind of an influence uh, tale and things go in every which direction and you end up with like factions of people that are connected and not connected and this whole nationalistic ties. Something that just kind of popped in my head as we were talking about this, th this today uh, and reading about it was a few years ago, uh, somebody had actually written an article for the Midnight Freemasons and it was called uh, the, the Blue and the Orange, Freemasonry and the Orange Order. And this article got a lot of uh, runaround because um, if anybody who is uh, unfamiliar, uh, the Orange Order is essentially an order that uh, formed and took its name after uh, William the William the or uh, William Orange is that yeah uh, so he William of Orange William of Orange thank you Orange so he, because he was Dutch yeah so uh, what's interesting is you've got people the Jacobites back William of Orange uh, I'm sorry they don't like him right and then you have people who are uh, still loyal to James, and then there's an attempt on William of Orange's life, and then you know eventually he dies or whatever. And there's this uh, connection to this Orange Order that exists today, and I think it's just it's just wild. And they and they have a Grand Lodge, and if I could just read this this little blurb at the bottom of this article because I thought it was just you know pertinent for today. Um, it says these fraternities have followed after the Masonic model as the oldest and most successful paradigm of fraternalism that exists. And it goes on to say, it says, but beyond this, the cosmetic similarity discussed earlier, Freemasonry and Orangeism are chalk and cheese. One promotes the universal brotherhood of man for the betterment of all mankind and advances beautiful systems of morality to achieve that end, while the other promotes militant loyalism and maintains deep connections with loyalist parliamentary groups with whom they promote sectarian violence. For proof of this, one need no need Wait, look which no is further. Freemasonry. <laughs> uh, one need look no further than the orange marches which pass unnecessarily through the Catholic areas of Northern Ireland. These marches more often than not lead to violence. So I was curious about this and I looked up uh, orange marches and sure enough, even into 2021, um, it is a huge thing. Um, it is uh, like racist ideologies and all of this wild stuff. This super yikes. I, I mean, it's crazy, right? So, so it's just wild to me though, because this is this kind of thing is born out of, the same time period is the the uh, the Jacobite uh, uprisings, um, and it's all it's all connected, and and it's really one of maybe the only things that has a loose connection to this today. So, so Joe, um, I want you to get to your your section about Jacobite inventions in a second here. Okay, but uh, before you do. <clears throat> There was another interesting linkage slash theory about the Jacobite influence 
uh, as far as the division of masonry. So um, around 1813, what's a really big division that happened in Freemasonry? Anyone? Anyone? Like an ancient and modern split, perhaps? Right. So what was going on there is that it, it's actually... It's been assumed that, um, or alleged, it's probably a better term, alleged that <clears throat> the ancients and modern splits was actually influenced by that. So much, in fact, that, um, you know, AE Wake calls it out, um, that within recent years, it's been advanced that the ancients' Grand Lodge was the masonry of the Catholics and the Stuarts, while that of the modern, the moderns, was Protestant and Hanoverian. Hanoverian. Um, but he says there's not a particle of real evidence to support that claim. But it's interesting to think about. You know what? I would be a bajillionaire if I did what some of these bros did and put three pages of stuff on and said, you know, I could say that, you know, uh, aliens came down and gave us the square and compass and everything is magical. But there's no corroborating evidence to support this. I just needed to fill a page of my encyclopedia. Like, Maybe. I would be a trillionaire by now because so, I hate that. So there is one piece of recent research that, that, that makes that loose tie just a little bit less loose, which is that um, the chief organizer and the ideologue of the ancients was one Lawrence Dermott, who was almost certainly of the Jacobite-connected Mac Dermott family of Strokeston... Um, Co-Roscommon Roscommon, it is also noteworthy that both the Irish and Scottish Grand Lodges continue to regard themselves as closer to the ancients than the official English Grand Lodge at that time. So, you know, it's circumstantial evidence, not causal evidence at that point. Right? But, you know, if it mm. kind of smells, if it's kind of smells like a Jacobite, maybe, I don't know. What have you got, Joe? Um, Fluids and smells. I don't even, I don't even know anymore. Well, I'm, we're not going to talk about juices anymore. Uh, and just a little tidbit on what uh, Robert was talking about with the Orange Order. Um, when I grew up in New York, uh, you know, New York is uh, my area of New York was very either Roman Catholic or or Jewish. Like that was my whole neighborhood. There was nothing in between. There was no. I didn't know what a Christian was uh, until I left New York. But I remember a couple of my friends' dads were a part of the Orange Order, um, super fiercely Protestant. And uh, I had to look this up later. If you were a member of the Orange Order and you married a non-Protestant, you would be expelled. So. Yikes. Y'all complain about our requirements to become a member. It gets hairy. But anywho. Um, so... One of the things that Waite wrote about was um, uh, Jacobite inventions, uh, and he he kind of coins this term talking about um, things that Jacobites invented to, uh, I guess, have legitimacy to their to their myths and legends. But um, you know, one thing was that there was um, you know Jacobite uh, rose croix uh, lodges, I guess you could call them, before that even became a term. And again, Waite also says, you know, I don't have any evidence of this, but, you know, it's a cool story. Um, but he does say one cool thing, um, which again is pretty and, and romanticized, but he writes about um, being a Jacobite invention is that uh, Jacobite Freemasonry 
uh, as their symbolism, had uh, a cubic stone, and that represented the House of Stuart. And that overthrown altars indicated, so I guess it's part of their, their seal or their logo, indicated that the House of Stuart was in exile, while their restoration meant that the royal house was reinstated, which it never really happened, right? But, um, you know, I think Waite calls it a cheap and tawdry explanation of holy symbolism. So I guess he wasn't a fan of that. And I think we know Waite was an American, but he was British, uh, of British lineage. So you know which way he went with things in his uh, encyclopedia. But I thought that was kind of neat. Mm -hmm. All right. So the, the last little tidbit of information uh, before we start to round it up for the final question is, you know, there is, again, when we talk about the p potential Jacobite influence towards um, the East, going towards France and French lodges. Um, and then, as we know, there's this growth of the Ecosse movement, the, the higher degrees. Um, there is some speculation of was the really the, the Jacobite um, Catholic influence part of what, what grew to the basically become the Scottish degree system that we have today, or at least from an early, very early standpoint. And, um, it, but the, the problem with that story is that the dates don't line up, right? So when we're talking again, uh, the huge uh, Jacobite uprising in uh, 1745 and, and they kind of got their butts kicked and that was really kind of the end of it you still had a couple people that were loyalists but you know they, they really uh, died out after that that was kind of the, the final battle and yet um the 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 history of the higher degrees of freemasonry really start to, uh, not to show up until um at least documented really don't show up until like the 1740 what have we got 1744 um where we have the the book Les Parfaits Maison published in 1744 where they actually talk about uh French lodges that are actually conferring higher degrees or additional degrees right which lead to the scotch degrees um that you know the, really at this point there, there's not a, a clear connection uh, timeline-wise because really it's it's the last hurrah for the Jacobites, um, whereas the higher degree system is starting to just is really just starting to evolve right then. You could say there's a there's a connection there, but it, it's again it's an, another loose one. So I just wanted to bring that bring that up because people have tried to link um, other things like well. Jacobites were in Scotland and the Knights Templar degrees came from Scotland. Okay, so like that's again, it's another weak connection that really doesn't have a lot of historical evidence to support that up. Well, it's because they went to hide there and then they went to Oak Island and then, you know, boom. That was boom. it. That was the link. I, I totally missed it. Final thoughts. Here we go. The final question. And they were descendant tonight. from the Templars who went Obviously. and hid in Roslyn Chapel. Obviously, <laughs> with the holy. Can grail. we do? Can we do an episode on on the origins of craft masonry? Like a debate episode. Ooh, I like it. I'm gonna lose. Yeah, the ancient I aliens we had one. Done one of those. I go. I go for the weird stuff, man. 
back in the day. I want. I want to. I want to round debate. two. Round two. Ooh, okay. Oh, I like I want to debate. debate whether whether masonry came out of the, the Templars or not. So oh, there's the there's the ancient mysticism theory. There is the Templar theory. There is the uh, British Supper Club sponsor theory, and then there is the um, the operative evolutionary right. theory that I personally ascribe to. You, for, you forgot the ancient aliens theory. So anyway, yeah. So let's let's uh, get to the final question. So this one should be an easy one for all of you. The final question is: Is there a an overt uh, Jacobite influence to Freemasonry, either in the past or in the present? And we'll start with our resident historian, Jason Richards. Um, the answer is none that can be corroborated through historical record. I would imagine that if there were an overt influence, um, hold on. I think that's a sneeze. Did you know that it's allergy season? Now you do. Um, if there were an overt influence, we would have more historical records. To that effect, especially given how records-focused craft lodges were in the early 1700s, really starting with 1600, uh, that's really where you see lodges keeping detailed records. And if you know, if those records have not surfaced, um, kind of linking Jacobism and Freemasonry, then to me it's very unlikely that the two are connected in any official capacity. Says our local historian. Thank you, Jason, for bringing that up. And thank you again for the fantastic short version of European history for a couple, 300, 400 years. So thanks again. Robert, what say you? What's the Jacobite influence to Freemasonry? <laughs> I, maybe the only influence that remains is uh, like an element of cronyism. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there's, a, there's certainly some of that that goes on. Uh, the, uh, the, the basic Jacobite belief of uh, God-appointed rulers, God, God appointed monarchies, uh, kind of is echoed a little bit in, in the way uh, Freemasonry has its uh, structure. Uh, certainly, we all say things like, we're all brother. Uh, but I think um, John and Jason, you guys were the people who uh, made me laugh my butt off the first time you said, you know, everybody's on the level. That's why there's so many. Um, uh, so so in that in that same respect, right? Um, uh, there, there is a uh, divine right to uh, control the fraternity, you know, by by grand master and its subordinate uh, line of officers, and and maybe that's the only tie that you could find. But it's not actually a tie, right? It's just a uh, a similarity between the two, and loose one of that. So, uh, Jacobitism and Freemasonry, 
Uh, no thanks. Uh, as I <laughs> mentioned in our uh, green room chat uh, that we all have, I said, you know, this is kind of an interesting topic. You, we get hung up on the history because uh, literally, masonically speaking, um, there's nothing. Um, you know, weight is by far probably the only one who mentions anything of, of note. Uh, and even he's kind of like, mm, I don't know. Meh. Right? So, um, yeah, that's all I got. Thanks. Awesome. Okay, Joe, was there a Jacobite influence to Freemasonry? Yes or no? Was there? Uh, I mean, probably, at least for the time that you had Jacobites who were Freemasons um, and, and they gathered together. I mean, I, I will agree with, with my uh, illustrious co-hosts that there probably is little, if any, uh, you know, commingling of juices today. I got it in one more time. Overt um, commingling of juices. <sighs> wow, that's so bad. We're going to lose um, our rating yeah. for this. I don't think there's any, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll use a different word. I don't think there's any Jacobite fluids in uh, modern Freemasonry today. Um, it doesn't but, make it uh, better. You're not helping. <laughs> you're highlighting it. So anyway, I don't think so. Not very much. Um, Jacobites, sorry, you guys lost. And uh, boom. Happy St. Patty's Day. Woo. Awesome. So Jacobite influence in Freemasonry, of course, of course there were, because there were Catholics that were Freemasons at the time, right? So, um, you know, even today we're living with the taking the politics and religion out of Lodge, and then yet we're still humans that have to deal with politics and religion outside of Lodge. And so to say that there wasn't any um, even implied influence, right, this, this is to be naive that you know we we bring we bring who we are into the lodge experience and so um while we don't have any good evidence as stated by weight and others who've done the research of explicit jacobite influence to change the direction of freemasonry um that's not to say that there weren't jacobites who were freemasons we actually we know our sixth grand master was and you know and he really wasn't all that upstanding of a person to be honest if you look at uh, philip wharton his uh his background he was a drunk and you know just kind of partied a little a little too hard but um either way you know it was a fascinating uh place to research i think you know the 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 evidence isn't there but it certainly makes for a good story and that's the way a lot of masonic myths start out as great stories that are just that, and that will that will re remain a part of our history, whether it's true or not. So with that, I want to thank you all very much for watching, and we searching for more light. Have a good night. Wow.